You're listening to the Catholic Psyche Podcast. The Catholic Psyche Podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not intended to take the place of medical or mental health treatment, therapy, or diagnosis. You should always consult a trained mental health or medical professional for such treatment. You're listening to the Catholic Psyche Podcast, and we need to move this microphone to an actual reasonable location here. So you're listening to the Catholic Psyche Podcast. This is Deacon Basil. This is Chris. And it is Saturday morning. This is like kind of a new experience for us here. I woke up early for this. You woke up early. (laughs) Is that that why you got the big bags under your eyes and everything? Slurping slurping our coffee. Yeah, that's part of the reason. Yeah, so today we're going to be talking about some of the different things that we've been reading. Um, you know, I, I think one of the biggest problems that uh, therapists run into is, it's the same thing with clergy, by the by, but it's you stop reading um, after graduation or ordination or full licensure or whatever it might be. And the problem is, is that, first off, psychotherapy changes. The latest uh, clinical interventions, the latest cl- clinical evidence changes. And um, we have to always stay up to date on that, especially when we're integrating both the philosophic with the theological uh, and the, with the psychological aspects of, of, of the human person. So it's just too much to just simply stop reading. Imagine if you're, um, I don't know, your cardiologist hadn't read a book on the on the human heart and interventions for blood pressure or whatever. He hadn't read anything since the late 1960s. Yeah, yeah, no, and it's it's a huge problem. I don't know. Imagine if like your primary care physician hadn't read anything about opioids since the 1990s. <laughs> Might be missing some Might new missing information. Stuff. Yeah, exactly, and and you know. One of the clear insights, and I think evidenced by the reality that we update uh, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders every probably decade and a half, you know, we update those on a regular basis because we have new insights when it comes to the psychological life, you know, and we are better and more refined in certain uh, certain areas and are able to kind of differentiate that. That's and the idea. That's least. the hope, at least. Yeah, but yeah. So, what are you reading these days, Chris? Yeah. So today's book book show and tell or book share and we've each got one book that we've read i'd say maybe in the last couple of months that has in some way this was the prompt at least in some way influenced our practice okay i brought a, a book called resilience and the virtue of fortitude the subtitle is aquinas in dialogue with the psychosocial sciences and the author is craig Stevens Titus, who uh, is some kind of professor at the Divine Mercy, formerly IPS. Uh, yeah, Catholic Divine Mercy School. University, University yeah. which offers, it's out in D.C., but it offers um, clinical... I, I think he's somewhere else, too. I want to say, was he in like Switzerland or somewhere? Uh, he is, yeah, he's with, um, I'm not going to even... Um, try and pronounce that but it's it's down in the show notes um if you want to my my swiss grandmother would uh, is dying uh, right in her grave right now so, um with this idea that i can't pronounce that but you know i think the point is is that he's very 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 well um he's a very high level uh yeah, yeah. researcher and um within the psychological and theological yeah so this guy craig stephen titus is um uh, you know, he's written on um, Aquinas' moral theology and also on the moral theology of uh, Father Surveys Pinkers, who is a Dominican and a giant of 20th century moral theology who revitalized, you know, Thomism and brought it back to its roots and, and, and away from the dry manualists who kind of deprived Thomas's moral theology of its, um, of its vitality in some ways. So Craig Stephen Titus takes that uh, takes that um, 
approach with him, armed with Surveys Pinkeras and Thomas Aquinas, and enters into dialogue with the research on resiliency, the research on positive psychology, the research on stress and emotion. And he looks at, in particular, these two concepts, what modern psychologists call resilience, which is actually something of a pretty popular, it's like a sexy research topic, you know what I mean? Yeah, you get you get funding if you can talk about resiliency. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you yeah. if you maybe if you did like a like a search of like um like a Google like um Ngram viewer, if you went through like the Google Books database, you'd see like resilience, the number of times it's been searched for like skyrocket, like yep. from the you know, mid early two thousands till now. Um so he's he's looking at that, and he's also looking at what all the classical philosophers of antiquity called fortitude. Fortitude is one of the four cardinal or hinge virtues. So these cardinal virtues are the virtues on which all the other virtues hinge. Right, so maybe you can just describe that just a little bit, because yeah. I think there's a lot of times where people um, get an idea of what the virtues are, yeah. but, but like the actual specifics of it yeah. are not really understood. So, sure, yeah, yeah. so we'll, this will test my memory. Good. Um, Okay, so there's four cardinal virtues, and this comes originally from Plato's Republic. Yes. It's developed by the Aristotelian tradition, and then Augustine and, and Aquinas really take it up and and baptize it. I would also add, just as a good Easterner, that it wasn't just Augustine or Aquinas that did it. Um, you know, the entire Evagrian model, um, the entire uh, John Cashin model, used the virtues as well. Great. I would say that Aquinas systematized it in a way that is a little bit more clear. Okay. Um, okay. Is that fair? I think that's fair. Yeah. I, I'm less familiar with that world, so um, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> yeah, these four hinge virtues are um, uh, prudence, which perfects the practical intellect. Um, temperance, which perfects the concupiscent part of the soul. So really quick, so the, the temp temperance being the concupiscent part of the soul, which is the desire. The desire. Base, right? Yeah. The desire. So the, the, the desire for um, food. Yep. The uh, temperance would help with fasting, for example, yep. would be an example of that. Good time, good time of year to talk about that. Yep. Justice, which perfects the will. And the virtue that we're talking about today, fortitude or sometimes it's translated as courage or bravery, but I think fortitude is, is a better word because it covers more. And that perfects the irascible part of the soul. What, what is that? Oh, <laughs> well, this is, uh, this is the part in between the uh, concupiscible and the uh, pure rational. Uh, okay. This is, this is utilizing okay. uh, uh, an Eastern approach, yeah, I would say. Yeah. So it's the sense that in many ways you have a concupiscible vice that is then mixed with intellectual rationality oh, okay. um, and it turns into an ir irascible. I could see that. Yeah. I, so I, uh, I'll, I, I'll just use an example. Sure. Right? Sure. Um, uh, vain glory yeah. being the pure desire for others, uh, for the, for the, uh, for the, the aspect of others, uh, the esteem of others gets mixed with rationality and turns into pride. Oh, sure. That makes perfect sense. Great, yep. great. Yeah, I, I, I often think the way it's the way it's talked about in, in uh, Thomistic circles, the uh, irascible part of the soul is the part that deals with um, difficulty, overcoming difficulty, mm. whereas concupiscence is, is kind of um, seeking, um, seeking pleasures. Um, so, you know, the irascible appetites have to do with um, our response to challenges. Okay, so, you know, we think about today, we talk about the fight or flight system. Those yep. are two responses to, um, to challenges, to obstacles, right? You can fight, you can flee, and the person who has fortitude will overcome. Yeah. So this is a great, uh, go ahead. So for, fortitude is particularly the virtue of the irascible power. 
That's right. That's right. And that's it very interesting. I've actually this is I, I'm supposed to give a talk on um, on the virtue ethics um, in the next couple of weeks, and I'm nice. doing it purely from an Evagrian perspective. And so I'm going to totally steal this. Throw in um, a little, just sprinkle a little bit of Western stuff. A little Western it. stuff. Yeah. It's two Westerners, so they'll totally eat it up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's really interesting because then then if that's the virtue, so I'm just I'm just thinking from my perspective, like okay, so some of the vices in the irascible power would be like anger, and that that's exactly sometimes right. would be a mixture of, of envy I think is, is probably the sin that would be associated with the with the thought of anger That's exactly um, right. and so the irascible power is that it's trying to overcome difficulty and then fortitude mm-hmm. would be the virtue associated this would yeah. we would say meekness but would be the specific but fortitude would mm-hmm. be kind of development of meekness the overarching aspect of me. Yeah, 100%. And that awesome. it's it's interesting because that's not what people tend to think of when they hear the word meek. One of the difficulties with using words that have been um, that are taken from translations of ancient texts is that words change their meanings over time. Absolutely. I've talked about this in previous episodes when when I've talked about happiness, which for Thomas Aquinas is the kind of the end or the fulfillment of the moral life. But that makes Thomas sound like Ayn Rand or something, yeah. right? Oh, you know, like he's just trying to get ahead and wants to, you know, get rich quick and, and then be happy. Well, not that kind of happiness. The kind of happiness that, you know, eudaimonia, fulfillment, you know. So Yeah, completion. Same with meekness, same with fortitude. These are words that have different meanings. Than, uh, and another related one is magnanimity, which we'll talk about. But magnanimity is a word that means something very different today than, than the way Aquinas uses it. For him, it means greatness of soul. So the magnanimous man who has fortitude and good measure, or, you know, woman, magnanimous human, um, doesn't have, a, isn't too rash and isn't too cowardly. It's that right medium. And you actually, this is a helpful framework for thinking about um, our clients, right? Um, are there times when clients come in with maybe anxiety disorders and they have um, a lack of that um, ability to um, uh, overcome and, and, and mobilize themselves? And are there times when clients maybe are, are you know, cycling in the manic phase and they, they could use a little more, um, they could use a little more of that, you know, they could swing the pendulum back towards, uh, if you want to put it this way, towards cowardice, right? Because what you want is you want the, me- the mean. The virtue is the middle between coward cowardliness and, and rash uh, impulsivity. And yes. that's where fortitude lies. So fortitude. Um, so the great thing about this book is, is, you know, there are lots of books that claim to put Catholic theologians in dialogue with psychology. And so many of them are written at like a kindergarten level. Like, I'm sorry, but there are so many books that don't deliver on that promise. Well, and this is, I, correct me if I'm wrong, this has been one of the things that we've talked about in the past, is that to actually do this yeah, well, correct. to actually be yeah. a th- what we would call a, ther- a theologian therapist yeah. or, a, you know, involved in this, <clears throat> it really, what happens very often is that you sacrifice one for the other. 100%. You know, you are sacrificing best clinical practice for some kind of theological justification, mm-hmm. or you're sacrificing theological justifications and theological um, worldviews and anthropology for a best clinical practice. Or you don't have a good understanding of either, of either. and you yep. get kind of like a like a very, you know, watered down, self-helpy kind of treatment that doesn't do justice to either subject. And in practicality, I mean, I see this not necessarily here in Denver, but I see this all the time yeah. out in the larger popular world where being like, you don't, you know, that, that there seems to be a limit of the theological understanding of, of certain therapists. And it yeah. seems sometimes that theologians lack psychological depth. Yeah. And one of the, that's one of the reasons, I mean, this was, you know, maybe the first conversation, the first long conversation we had. And it's one of the reasons we're doing this podcast right. and one of the reasons we're working together and on this right. project at Mount Tabor. Um, and this book is an exception 
to yeah. that rule. This this uh, author surveys the resiliency research in such depth that I would keep this book on my shelf even if he butchered Aquinas, simply because the first like three chapters are such a phenomenal overview of resilience research. Mm -hmm. He talks about everything from the studies on, you know, um, children in places of famine where certain certain temperament traits are resiliencies in one situation, but risk factors in another. He talks mm. about the sociological research on how religion can be both a resiliency and a risk factor. He talks about families and peer groups. He dips into the neurobiology of emotion. He talks about child development. He talks about marriage and family life from a research perspective. And you get this incredibly great summary of the literature. Now, some of it is a bit dated. I noticed that he doesn't have too many research citations from like after two, you know, 2005, but he draws from some really good stuff. I'd say like, if you want to get to know like the, the late nineties research on resiliency, you, you could read the first three chapters of this book. And, and I think, you know, sometimes we look back at the research from the past and say, well, it wasn't quite accurate and that's true, but it gives the foundation for the clinical yeah. practice now. That's right. Um, that's and I right. think that can be very helpful. And, and coincidentally, the research that's coming out right now is affecting the clinical interventions of the future, not the current ones that we're using. So uh -huh. sometimes it, you know, there's a, there's a lag to it. Your yeah. Book. Yeah. Absolutely. There's so, definitely a lag. So I'll wrap up by just giving, giving the listeners just a couple of my cool takeaways and maybe that'll be like a teaser and hopefully inspire someone to read this book again, resilience and the virtue of fortitude. Um, and the links in the show notes, the links in the show notes. Um, he also does a brilliant treatment of Thomas Aquinas and brings the two into dialogue in a really interesting way. One of the one of the most fascinating things for me, Basil, was when he talked about um, the qualities of the of the magnanimous person, and and so like what does that look like practically? And one of them that this is like an amazing link between you know ancient philosophy and modern psychology is the focus that Aquinas, um, the uh, the importance that Aquinas places on focused attention. In the magnanimous, he says that the magnanimous man, the per, the man who has fortitude, has an ability to focus his attention on that which is most important. Now, today, I mean, I, I left a study on on the desk at our office, you know, not too long ago. I mean, attention is such a hot topic. There, are, there's so many, um, there's so much research on how like mindfulness meditation increases our um, sustained attention skills, how breathing increases attention, how different like cognitive exercises, how learning how to play an instrument helps with working memory and attention. But when you think about it, attention is so foundational. And what what is going on when someone has an anxiety problem where they're ruminating or catastrophizing? They they don't have the discipline, a mental discipline or a power of will to refocus their attention. So their attention gets focused on um, these catastrophic thoughts over and over again. Yeah. Fascinating. And, and, and we live in a culture now that is explicitly trying to distract us from attention, you know, um, oh, yeah. whether it be through social media or cell phones or anything else. I, I've, I had this, this, uh, this YouTube presenter of all things, yeah, yeah. um, just say, you know, why don't you just notice when there's a lull in a conversation, what, what what you go for first? Do you go for like, you know, involvement to deepen the conversation or you grab your phone when you're distracted? And if so, what apps on your phone do you go to? Why don't you delete those for a month and just see what your life is like? It's and great. it's just, you know, I mean, I probably should do that myself, actually. But I, I mean, think that's, <laughs> that's the point is that what's the attention that we're, what, that we're putting towards? I don't know. I was like reading that very chapter on focused attention, like in a, in a public coffee shop and like, checking my phone yeah. and like looking out the window and like day 
daydreaming and I was like, man, like I have a long way to go to become the magnanimous man. But but it's it's a good it's a good practical um, takeaway, right? Because sometimes it's it's hard to it's hard to see like what exactly does that look like. Now that's only one of many aspects, but I think clinically, how important is it for us to be helping our clients build in more powerful sustained focused attention. Absolutely. All and right. I think that's the exact point. So um, again, uh, resiliency and the virtue of fortitude. Yep. Um, Craig Stephen Titus. And it we'll is uh, it's in the show notes. Yeah. yeah. And it's available on Amazon, right? Yeah. yeah I got it from Amazon. Yeah. yeah. Everything is available from Amazon. So the book that I uh, have been uh, moving through is The Science of Virtue. And it's why positive psychology matters to the church. I mean, it's by Mark McKinn. Um, and this this text for me has been really kind of influential. And I think in order to kind of understand what positive psychology, like the, the movement of positive psychology is right now, in the mid nineties, you have this big shift because of the APA president at that, the American Psychiatric Association's mm-hmm. president at the time. Psychological. Psychological. Yeah, sorry, sorry, Selling psychological. Me. So yeah. big. Um, what he, he what he said was he looked out at the psychological landscape and said, why is it that we are so good at diagnosing illness but we can't actually help anybody when they come in and just want to be happy you know and and sometimes i think we differentiate uh we don't differentiate well enough um the sort of non-depressed from happy yeah you know and 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 even to the point of whether that be a virtuous happiness or whether that be you know a a a just state of contentment um we don't differentiate that well enough so we can make people not depressed very very well through cbt or through existential work or whatever it might be but we have a hard time actually making them happy yeah flourish flourish and i think that's that was that's what really moved him to be come involved in the uh in the positive positive psychology movement basically Mm -hmm. begin the positive psychology movement so it's probably out of all of the different schools of thought right now Really, it's the largest new school of, of psychological thought in the last probably 25 to 30 years. Yep. Um, and what it really is, is it's about how do we make people flourish? Yeah. And or what, what makes people What flourish, makes people yeah. flourish? And then how, yeah, not how can we I, make I think it starts flourish, theoretical. But. And now the newer stuff is like the book maybe you're going to be sharing, like the mm-hmm. moving from the theoretical to the clinical. Absolutely. And so my interest has been... Well, from a positive psychology perspective is how that integrates with the church. And uh, this has been really a, a phenomenal book. It was written in 2012, I think. And, and it really kind of conceptualizes that, that desire and that need for um, the church to kind of start talking in terms of how do we help people flourish? How can we understand flourishing? And then how can we implement that? And the church has always done this um, from the very beginning because it is through the virtues and exactly what Thomas Aquinas and... It's a great pairing, by the way. Exactly. It's almost like we thought this out, but we really didn't, actually. It's just two books Um, we happen to be reading. Yeah, they really dovetail on each other. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say that yours is much more theoretical and and theological. Mine has been much more kind of practical. Which is, is, again, the correct order. Right, right. (laughs) We should start with the theoretical before the practical. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think the, the, the kind of key about... This for me has been um, what this what this author what uh, Mark McKinn does is he was a he's a Protestant but what he did is he he went off and became a, psych- a psychologist um, in the mid '80s when he was in this state of uh, he tells a story about um, this this church member pulling him aside and saying you're going to lose your soul if mm-hmm. you go and study psychology and I think that 
even to this day, is something I hear on a regular I've basis. Heard that, I've heard that from Protestants and Catholics. And Catholics. And sometimes, sometimes it feels like um, we're not fully accepted by the church as yeah. therapists, but we're um, not, but as Catholic therapists, we're not fully accepted, accepted by, by the culture, by the culture, yeah. um, especially in the psychological realm. And we're it's in funny, no like, man's land. We are in yeah, no man's yeah, land, yeah. yeah. And, and like people, it's changed in the last probably five years, but I, sometimes when I say I work with Catholics um, at like clinical, yeah. pure clinical places, the people get weirded out by it. You know, he had that same experience and... Um, for him, it has been positive psychology is really about the sort of psychological side of developing the virtues. Um, and so why does it matter? I mean, kind of using a spoiler alert, you know, why does he say this? Why uh, positive psychology matters to the church? Well, it's because it's a way of developing the virtues mm-hmm. and it's a way in which the the average person can be accessible to the spiritual life, meaning the psychological life, that is not necessarily focused in on um, all of the negative things. You don't have to have a, di- a diagnosable disorder to benefit from the latest clinical work and the latest clinical research. And so for him, you know, he, he outlines it um, really just, I mean, it's just so cool. He outlines it within this this framework of, uh, of the different virtues. I mean, he's got, I think, five virtues in here. Um, six virtues that he goes through and he kind of describes how they, the, the latest positive psychology research on it. Mm. Again, it's a little dated now, but, you know, for example, wisdom. Oh, wow. What is the sort of theological research of wisdom? What's a sort of psychological way of understanding it? And then the clinical way of implementing that. um, What's the latest research on how to implement that and grow that within our our lives and our clients' lives? That's fascinating. Right? That's fascinating. That's amazing that, that psychologists are studying wisdom because not even... Philosophers are, are studied. Like wisdom is, is is a passe term. I mean, uh, a friend of mine picked up you know the, the latest book by this uh, renowned contemporary analytic uh, epistemologist, right? So mm-hmm. someone who studies knowledge. And I looked through the back index, and the word wisdom was nowhere to be found in that Isn't book. That so How do you crazy? study learning and knowledge without understanding wisdom? I don't know. Well, and it becomes this sort of like pseudo intellectual pursuit where wisdom and um, intelligence get linked together, and but there's literally nothing in common. You can be mm-hmm. the most intelligent person in the world. And be the most unwise person. You can have an intellectual disability and be, you know, incredibly well. How do you wise. how do you conceive of wisdom, and how does this book conceive? Well, I, of I think um, I think the way in which wisdom can do is it's the it's the virtuous way of acting rightly. Oh, okay, interesting. Okay. So intelligence helps with that, or, or sort of intellectual evidence can help with that. Sure, sure. But I don't know about you. I think sometimes the folly of the manualist tradition has yeah. been as if we just present this clear logical proof for X, Y, and Z, and this is the way we should yeah, act, yeah, yeah. then somehow that's going to move me yeah, to yeah. act in a certain way. And, oh, and, and, and all of modern science is, is this way, right? It's absolutely. like this Cartesian kind of paint-by-numbers approach where you don't actually have to bring your own intellectual... I mean, you know, this is not how it is in practice, but in kind of the flawed theory of its genesis, it's like if you just follow the method, you get the result. Right, absolutely. But, but no, that's not how it works. That's not how life works. No. And and I think you know I think I think that's the key. So for example, I can read Thomas Aquinas when he talks about. I don't know that Thomas Aquinas talks about addiction. Does he? Uh, well, a little bit. W- maybe our next book share. I'll share my book on Aquinas and addiction. <laughs> right. But but you know I mean, the manualist tradition would say, well, you read Thomas Aquinas and and you should you know be moved to not drink anymore and I, that's a very cold way of putting it. But in, the in, the reality in, is is that wisdom is the process of saying. Okay, what do I actually, how do I actually implement this? You know what they say in AA? 
what your best thinking is what got you here right exactly yeah. well and that's i mean that's exactly it is the, exactly the, it. the irascible and don't think you can't think your way out of an addiction right yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. And, and the church fathers actually completely agree with completely. that yeah, with the irascible and thomas, thomas. Yeah. yep yeah. the whole nine yards so i think um the process here is is how do you implement that with wisdom now wisdom is um you know probably one of the better chapters but the one that interested me the most was the one on forgiveness oh, and the virtue wow. of forgiveness that's so cool and i actually preached a homily about this a couple of uh weeks back months now um, about this concept of forgiveness and, and how we do it. And so he uses this, this process of saying the RISE model. Um, okay. And this is actually a positive psychology model. And so um, the first one is, you know, it's, a, it's, it's a like positive, an acronym. An acronym. Yeah. Um, so RISE is um, you have to first recognize the hurt. Okay. Um, and for me, like, this is the entire concept of you have to actually realize how this person has hurt you. And sometimes I think in the church, we're just like, just forgive and forget right on the spot. You know, it's like, no, actually, you have to realize the depth of the pain that the other person has put you through. Completely. Um, Otherwise, yeah, it's it's not, it can't be true forgiveness. Absolutely. I mean, God doesn't do that with us. He does not turn a blind eye to our sin. He sees it more than we see it. And for and, and, and requires confession. Requires, yeah, yeah. And confession means to say in Greek means to say the same words. Now I want to okay. So go through the rise yeah, model yeah. because I have another question about about forgiving people who who don't repent. So. No, I think that's great. So you have to recognize the recognize the hurt. Then um, the. I, I the I, I have, uh, let me let me look it up here real quick. Um, <clears throat> so while you're doing that, I'll yeah. just say. Um, a few things. Uh, forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation. That's a common one that people get tripped up on. Right. Like you can forgive someone without having to bring them back into your life. Yeah. So, yeah. When I said rise, I meant reach. Um, so you have to recognize. <laughs> you know what? There's another. There is another rise another model. Rise and, model. Uh, yeah. But okay. uh, so reach and and reach. so the e and this is why I was like I oh shoot what is that no the I stands reach. for the intellect uh, the intellect. <laughs> If to intellectualize away the pain. No, the um, S for, for the Sophia. The Sophia, what yeah. <laughs> no, no, so so reach. So, um, But it's still R is recognize the hurt. <laughs> yeah. E is empathize. Oh, and this is really an interesting thing. And I think where that kind of comes down um, for me is is actually coincidentally back to that AA model. <clears throat> there but for the grace of God go I. Um, yeah, AA is so good. And I, I think, you know, one of the big struggles of this is that we have this tendency to think... I could never do X, Y, and Z. Oh. You know? Yeah. Um, the difference between me and the most horrendous person in the world is just a matter of opportunity and time. And grace. And grace. You know? I, 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 I think that's one of the big problems that we sometimes have when we come to forgiveness. Is like, well, this is just not, you know, I, I would never fall in that way. No, actually, we need to empathize with the other person and understand that, you know, there might have been reasons why this happened. Now, this gets really hard mm -hmm. in things like, really intense pain and sometimes this is why therapy and and the process takes a long time i mean i i more and more this has been my classic phrase over the last couple of weeks the reason why the spiritual life is 70 years or 80 for who are strong which means coincidentally that's what the psalm says the reason why life is 70 years or 80 for who are strong is because it's so hard mm -hmm. this is not an easy thing and this is not a quick thing and it takes a lot of time. So you have to empathize. And then the step three, you know, the A, which would be an altruistic gift. It's ultimately you offering a gift to the other person. Oh, I love that gift language. And because because deep down, it has to be. Yeah, it's gratuitous. It's gratuitous. Yeah. And then, um, so that's that's uh, the A. And then you move on to C, which means you have to commit, which is, this is just so insightful. You have to commit to continue this gift. 
Yeah, because so often people are like, yeah, I forgive them. And then and then harbor continued resentment in their yep. heart. Yeah, that's not, yeah, that's not forgiveness. Absolutely. You have to hold, so you have to do that. And then H is you have to hold on to that forgiveness over time. Yeah. So you have to commit to it and then you have to hold on to it. Because look, things happen. We're going to have psychological triggers that hit us and be like, that was exactly the way my father said that when my father was doing terrible, th you know, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And it's going to remind me of it and I have to then re-forgive. But isn't that like kind of what my experience of God is? Like I have to ask God for forgiveness constantly for coincidentally the same darn things every single time I go to confession. I don't know what your experience is, but when I go to the sacrament, it's like pretty much the same thing. It's a rare situation when it's a radically different. <laughs> I get really excited when I find a new sin and it's like, great, I can like, now I can like make some progress. No, yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, well and, and notice not one of those, there, there's no like, it's not like reach reacher or something. There's no like R at the end that says like, now re-enter that person into your life. Return, no. the, return the relationship. No, you, you can have a, ba a hard boundary that says, uh, I will never speak to them again. And if they write to me, I will tear up their letters and you can still have forgiven them. And, and that's sometimes the healthiest thing you can do. Totally. So I think what's really cool about this is that, you know, there's, there's clinical ways of talking about that that are now being found. And I don't know what your experience has been, but the idea of talking about forgiveness within the clinical interaction is so new and foreign to most clinicians. Um, it's just this radical, like, what? I mean, what? There, there's been some, you know, little forgiveness therapy kind of pockets right, for but, decades. But, yeah, it hasn't entered the mainstream, I don't think. And I think, you know, one of the things that positive psychology has really kind of started to do is 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 allow that to become mainstream. Yeah. Now, I think also, I mean, I don't think anyone should just be a positive psychotherapist. Like, you, you need to be able to work with the, with the negative side of life because life has negative sides to it. And we need to be able to dialogue with that. Yeah, my, my pessimistic side sometimes is, like, more drawn to Freud for that reason. It's like, <laughs> yeah, you know, mankind is, like, so... So screwed up. Yeah. Yeah, but 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 just knowing like um knowing the research about what makes people flourish can be so helpful. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you had a question. Um. Yeah. So, what would you say about you? You know, you said God requires confession. This is this is a, a kind of a, a common question people will ask. Like, yep. What 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 should the Christian disposition be towards forgiving those who don't ask? forgiveness of us yeah and this is this is an interesting thing because it's changed over the years um depending on cultural things theology you know the truths of theology don't you know remain the same but sometimes it's expressed differently okay um okay. and i think I'll you know you so i think the key about this is how do we understand confession um you know how do we understand it when when there is absolutely no forgiveness well i think my key to that would be why um why did this why, why does this person still have control over your life Sure, sure, um, sure. You know, sometimes the greatest thing, sometimes people will tell me how much they hated X, Y, and Z the person, people, mm -hmm, you know? Mm -hmm. And then it's like, well, but you're still allowing this person to control your life by actually not offering them that kind of forgiveness. The forgiveness is more for the forgiver. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Forgive E if you want to put it that I way. I think so. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And, and obviously that's a big difference between us and God, you know, when God forgives. Because it's entirely for the forgivee, but well, um, yes, but even in, in the example of our Lord on the cross, right? What does yeah. he say to those crucifying him? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. They never, they never repented. They never asked yeah. for his forgiveness. There, so. absolutely, absolutely. Great. So I think I think the process is to say it's hard. It's mm -hmm. difficult to forgive, but it also is ultimately what we as Christians are called to do, even in that difficulty. Even in the pain of that. And yeah. I, trust me, as a therapist, I know yeah. just a big swath of the kind of pain that people can experience. 
and I, I know how hard it is. I'm not I'm not starry-eyed on that in any way. But I do the hardest thing. I think it is the hardest thing. And it requires a great gift of God. I mean it requires exactly right. the altruistic gift of the cross, I think. And I think because of that, the cross has that that power. It's almost like it's not coming from you. I mean, this now transcends the psychological, but like it's not your, it's like, you know, um, Father Jacques Philippe, the founder of the Beatitudes, said mm-hmm. this in a lecture recently. It, it really stayed with me. Like, to forgive someone who's committed something, so, such a heinous crime against you or a loved one, you might not even have the power in your own soul to yeah. forgive that person. But you can borrow that. It's God's forgiveness, and you're just the channel through which it gets applied. Absolutely. And sometimes if I can't forgive, maybe I can help God. Yeah, you know, maybe I can be the conduit of God's forgiveness. That's right. Just let even God if do you it. don't ever talk with the person. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing. That sounds absolutely. Like, so, that's so the science of virtue is the name of that. The science of virtue: why positive psychology matters to the church. All right. And again, that'll be in the link down below. But this has been kind of what we've been reading the last couple of weeks. I and, love uh, it. Yeah. So it was great to see you. And, and maybe, listeners can also recommend books to us. Yeah, absolutely. And the, they can do that on the contact page in the question uh, mm-hmm. section of our of yep. our uh, CatholicPsyche.com. Yep. Awesome. Well, we will see you next time on the Catholic Psyche Podcast.